Father, we pray that you would keep us from being the bride of Christ that totally and completely misses the whole point of everything and eyes her garment or admires her own beauty or is so self-centered and so self-focused that she does not see the pierced hand. Lord, we ask that by your word, by the power of your spirit, you would so change our hearts that we would know that the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's lamb, land. So Lord, we pray that you would come and we pray that you would work. We pray that you would change us. We pray that you would make us people who know what it is to be broken before you, to be undone by your holiness, and then to be mended by the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would cause this to work its way out in our lives in more ways than we can even begin to enumerate. Make us those for whom to live is Christ. And we ask that you do it in his name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 28. And we pick up our study of Genesis. I'm thankful uh, for those who preached in the month of December. Um, We left off last time in Genesis 27. And when we were last here, Jacob had just destroyed his family. And the way that he had destroyed his family is he had stolen his brother Esau's blessing. And he had deceived his father uh, Isaac. And it's, it's remarkable the way that the story is told. One of, the, one of the interesting features of the story is the way that uh, Jacob's mother, Rebecca, had actually clothed Jacob with skins, with th- those lamb skins, to make his skin seem hairy like his brother's. But the only other time in the book of Genesis that somebody gets clothed with skins is all the way back in Genesis 3. And so what Moses has done for us there is he's tied together Adam's sin and the havoc that that wrought in all of creation with Jacob's sin and the havoc that that wreaks in all of his family. And as we saw when we were looking at that passage, this results in a 20-year rupture, not only between Jacob and Esau, but between Jacob and his mother who loved him and between Jacob and his father Isaac. And as we come to this passage this morning, I've entitled this sermon, Adventures in Missing the Point, because everybody in this passage misses the point. I mean, God doesn't miss a point, and he's in the passage, but all the humans in this passage miss the point. They they totally get distracted by other things, and they, they miss what is going on right before them, what God is doing right before them. And really, this starts with Isaac. So application for dads right out of the gate. If you want to ruin your family, if you want to, ru- ru- if you want to bring about a 20-year rupture between yourself and your children, if you want to, if you want to destroy the, the whole of your family life, miss the point. Be like Isaac, and, and we read back in Genesis chapter 25 
that Isaac, in verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. That's the only explanation that we're given as to why it is that Isaac preferred Esau. But he does. He prefers Esau even though, right before that in Genesis 25, an oracle from God, the Lord had said to Rebekah, probably through Isaac, the older, that's Esau, will serve the younger, that's Jacob. And so the Lord is telling the family, Jacob is the chosen one. Jacob is the one who's going to inherit the blessing. Jacob is the one that Esau is going to serve. And here's what a godly father does in response to that. A godly father says, all right, let's get on board with the program. God has given us these promises, this blessing of Abraham God's, God's purpose in the world is to bring about redemption through the line of descent that stems from the, the woman and the man, the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden, the seed of the woman, and that's coming through the, the line of Abraham, and it's now coming through us, and God has just told us that Jacob is the guy that's going to continue the line of descent. So everybody here has a responsibility to, to rejoice in what God is going to do through Jacob. Esau, your job, don't be like Cain who said, am I my brother's keeper? Esau, your job is to be your brother's keeper. Your job is to look out for your brother. Your job is to get on board with the salvation that God is going to bring about through your brother. That's what we're all here for. The redemption of the world that's going to come through Jacob. That's not what Isaac does. Isaac says, man, this food is really tasty. I really like Esau. I think I'll try to bless Esau. And the result of that is rupture between Isaac and Rebekah. I mean, I don't think that Rebekah does the right thing when she instigates Jacob, uh, deceiving uh, Isaac. But it, it seems that she wants Jacob to get the blessing. So, so really, I'm going to lay the fault for all this at Isaac's feet. But, but Rebekah's got her share of responsibility. But you know what happens. Jacob steals the blessing, and now... They're sending Jacob away as we come to Genesis chapter 28. And and what we're going to see here is that not only has Isaac missed the point, Jacob is going to miss the point of what Isaac says to him and then of what God says to him. And then we're also going to see here that Esau is going to miss the point. Everybody misses the point. God is promising these people that the Savior will come from their line. God is promising these people that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through them. And Isaac got distracted by food, and apparently he didn't teach his children to know God. So let's begin here with Genesis chapter 28 in verses 1 through 7. We've got got two units here, verses 1 through 7, and then verses 8 through 22. And both of these units have a kind of ring structure, or they're both, they're both constructed so that there are matching elements at the beginning and the, at the end that tell us where the boundaries are, and then the intervening elements match, and then both units center on the, the, the transferal, the transmission of the blessing of Abraham to Jacob. So, so the big thing here that Moses is showing is, is how God is always a savior of sinners. God saves people who miss the point. God is going to work in Jacob's life so that even though Jacob is totally distracted, and and Jacob, 
God graciously gives Jacob this awesome revelation of himself. Jacob totally doesn't get it, and God still saves him. So really what we come away from this is not thinking to ourselves, look at how stupid those people are that they totally missed the point. Really what we should come away thinking is, look at how gracious God is to sinners and distracted people like us. That's what's going on here in Genesis 28. So uh, look with me at verse 1 of Genesis 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. And then I would just invite you to drop your eyes down to the end of verse 6, where in verse 6 Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to put on Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him. So these are these bracketing units. And then look back up at verse 1, the last part of verse 1, where Jacob, Isaac says to Jacob, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And then drop your eyes down to verse 6 again at the end of the verse where it's rehearsed how Isaac said to Jacob, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Now, let's just pause here and think about this for just a moment. Why is Jacob so insistent, why is, I'm sorry, why is Isaac so insistent that Jacob not marry, not intermarry with the Canaanites? Well, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, when after Noah comes off the boat, he, he plants a vineyard, and he gets himself totally drunk, and he lies exposed in the tent, and his, young, his youngest son, Ham, mocks him. And as a result of that, Noah pronounces a curse over Ham and over the descendants of Ham, which include the Canaanites and the Egyptians. And, and we're going to see in, in, the, in the Bible, we would see this if we kept going into Exodus, that God identifies himself as one who visits the, the sins of the fathers on the sons to the third and the fourth generation. And so the curse that, that comes on Ham is going to echo down to Canaan and echo down to the Egyptians. And because God blesses Abraham, the, line, the people of Abraham are not to intermarry with those who are under God's curse. And so this is why they are not to intermarry with the Canaanites. This is why, I think this is why, Abraham even intermarries within his own father's household. Uh, you know, he, he marries Sarah, who is the daughter of his father, but not of his mother. And then when it comes time to get a wife for Isaac, he sends his servant back to that same family, the, the descendants of his brother, to, to bring Rebekah for Isaac. And now Jacob is being sent to that same family line, uh, the descendants of, of Bethuel, uh, Rebekah, that, that whole household, to find a wife for Jacob. But the key issue is the, the people who inherit the blessing of Abraham are not to intermarry with those who are under God's curse. So in verse 1, Isaac gives Jacob this directive. Look at verse 7. Jacob, Esau saw that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. So that's our, those are the brackets of our first unit, verses 1 and then verses 6 and 7, where we hear about the command, the blessing, the directive, and the obedience. Now, if we go one ring inside of that, we have verses 2 and 5. Let's look at these two verses. Look, look at verse 2 with me. Isaac says to Jacob, Arise, go to Padanaram 
to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now look how similar to this verse 5 is. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padanaram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Almost the exact same statements, right? And, and so what's happening is Moses is constructing this, almost it's like a set of stairs on each side that builds up to what is central and what's most important. And that's what we find in verses 3 and 4. What's most important here is that Jacob is about to have Isaac give to him the blessing of Abraham. And we shouldn't miss the import of this blessing. This blessing is about the salvation of the world. This blessing is about God rolling back the curses that come into the world because of human sin. Which, If we go back to that, God visits the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Well, that's what all of us have experienced because of Adam's sin. We are all under the sin of Adam. We are all suffering because of Adam's failure in the garden. But God has given a blessing that's about the lifting of the curse. And here, here it is right here at the center of this first unit. As Isaac says to Jacob, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. And in saying this, we're really getting an echo of Genesis 1.28. You remember that statement? When God made man, male and female, in his own Im image, uh, he, male and female, he created them. And then it says, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. This is what God says to Adam. And this is now what Isaac is communicating to Jacob. So the blessing of Abraham it's, it's really a blessing for all humanity as it reaches all the way back to Genesis 1, 28 in this way. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. Uh, it's, it, you could translate that word company, assembly, that you, could, you, you become a whole group, uh, lots and lots of peoples. What's that about? That's about descendants, right? That's about seed. That's about offspring. The word seed or offspring is not used here, but it's about descendants. So we've been talking as we've moved across Genesis about how the blessing of Abraham is about land, seed, and blessing. This is the seed part. And then verse 4, Isaac says to Jacob, may he give the blessing of Abraham to you. There's the blessing part. And interestingly, this is the only place in all, I think all the Bible, at least all of Genesis, where we actually have this phrase, the blessing of Abraham. Only place in the whole of Genesis where you have this particular phrase, the blessing of Abraham. May he give the blessing of So you got offspring or descendants in the first part of verse, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 3. And now we get the blessing of Abraham in the first part of verse 4. And then look what comes next. And to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So God gives to Jacob there, through Isaac, land, seed, blessing. And let's just pause for a moment and remember how this points, out, points up, how it connects up with all of salvation. The land is about the renewal of creation. This is a promise that ultimately is going to come to fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth. God did not make the world to be defiled by sin and then broken and ruined forever. 
No, God made the world so that he could display his his life-giving, renewing power in a world broken by his judgment because of sin. So this promise of land is really pointing to the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and new earth. And the promise of offspring, it's sort of twofold. On one hand, it's about the line of descent that that continues down to Jesus. On the other hand, it's about us. All of us who have turned from our rebellion against God and placed our hope in Christ and who now believe in the God of Abraham and who hope in the renewal of the world that God promised to Abraham. That's what what this promise of seed is ultimately about. The way that Christ, Isaiah 53, after he he makes his soul a guilt offering for sin, it says he will see his seed, he will see his offspring. That's the people that come to know God because of what he accomplishes. And then blessing. What a blessing to know God, isn't it? In a a world of of so much discouragement, so much sadness, so much to be upset about, in a world of, of, of so much pain and sorrow, the people that walk with God, it's like Psalm 84. The highways are in their hearts. And even as they go through the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping, they they make it a place of joy because because our experience is like Paul's experience as he spoke of himself as one who who was sorrowful and yet always rejoicing because if you know God, there is always hope. That's what it means to live under the blessing of Abraham. This is what God gives to Jacob. And Esau's the first person we're going to see next. Jacob's going to miss the point as we continue. Esau's the first person who's going to look at this, and he's going to respond in a totally and completely wrong way. He's going to try to respond, but he just doesn't get it. So we see Esau's response first in verse 8. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives that he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's sister. I'm sorry, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. So poor Esau, he looks at the situation and and he he realizes the Canaanite women don't please my father. And, And I think Esau's really pretty dull here. He should have caught on to this a long time ago. And, and you could probably chalk this up to Isaac's failure. Isaac should have taught his children. Isaac should have insisted. Isaac should have discipled. I, it should have been evident to Esau all along. And, you know, in Isaac's defense, maybe he did try. And maybe Esau said, yeah, I hear what you're saying, Dad, but you don't understand how good-looking this woman is, this Canaanite woman that I want to marry is. And so maybe Esau rebelled. I don't know. Whatever the case, Esau finally catches on. Canaanite women displease parents under God's curse. Now, what would, what would a right response to this be? I think a, a right, right response would probably be to say, well, I messed up in marrying Canaanite women. I'm going to repent of that. I'm going to hope in the promise that's been handed to my brother. And I'm going to try to walk with God. And I'm going to try to do everything I can to be part of this blessing that God has promised to, to my grandfather Abraham that's now been passed on to my brother. I don't think a right response is to, is to 
go marry some more women. (laughs) That's not going to help anything. That's only going to make matters worse, especially if the woman that he now tries to marry is also under the curse because she's from Ishmael's line. And and Ishmael intermarried with an Egyptian, and the Egyptians are under that same curse that, that Canaan is under. So Esau, he tries to take these external steps to try to make things right, but it's not coming out of a heart that has really come to appreciate what God is doing through the blessing of Abraham. Jacob and Esau... Neither one of them seems to understand the blessing of Abraham. We're going to work through this passage more in, 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 in order that we find the verses, but we'll see at the end, down in verses 20 and 21, that Esau doesn't get it any more. I'm sorry, Jacob doesn't get it any more than Esau had. So look with me at verse 10. We read here, Jacob left Beersheba, and went toward Haran. Now, I just want to pause here and note that uh, Beersheba is down in the south, and then Bethel is kind of up north from where they are. So he starts from Beersheba down in the south, and then he goes north to Bethel, and he's on his way up to Haran, which is, which is a good way north of uh, the land of Israel, and it's, and it's sort of starting to move eastward back toward Ur of the Chaldees. And Abraham had actually started in Ur of the Chaldees and then come over to Haran and then come down to Bethel. You read about Bethel back in Genesis 12 as Abraham is coming into the land of promise. And then eventually Abraham settles down in Beersheba. So what's happening here is Jacob is going back east where Abraham had come west. And and this reversal points to ways that, that what's happening in this narrative with Jacob is like the opposite of what happened with Abraham. And and there are going to be a number of points of contact between Abraham and Jacob as 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 we continue through here. Verse 11, he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed... And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Now, I just want to pause for a moment and, and, and ask you, do you remember a time in Genesis when somebody said that they wanted to build something, and they wanted the top of it in the heavens? Genesis 11, right? Tower of Babel. That's what they're trying to achieve. So what's remarkable here is that God is graciously giving to Jacob what the people of Babel sought by their own strength, by their own wisdom. And this is the way that, this is the way that walking with God goes. This is the way that salvation goes. God graciously gives to his people what the world desires what the world seeks by its own wisdom, by its own power. But you'll never save yourself by your own wisdom. You'll never save yourself by your own power. You'll find that just as God thwarted the designs of the people at Babel and and confused their language, if you try to save yourself, your project will end up the same way. If you're going to be saved, it's going to be like Jacob gets saved, where God graciously, mercifully reveals himself to you, opens the heavens for you, and causes you to see. 
So he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. Uh, some, there's a footnote in the ESV, and it says, or a flight of steps. And I think that's probably a better way to think about this. this he sees this flight of steps that's, that's going up. It's set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And we, we read further, behold, there in verse 12, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So what we're seeing here is this, this point of connection between heaven and earth. And, and in what follows in verses 13 to 15, we're at the center of this unit. So, so if you want to know what, what's the big deal here about Jacob's ladder, so to speak, or Jacob's flight of steps that goes up into heaven, this is the big deal, verses 13 to 15. This is the point. This is what Jacob should lock onto and cling to. Look at what we read here in verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it. So there's, there's God himself appearing to Jacob. And he said, first thing God does is identify himself. I am Yahweh. You see that L-O-R-D, the R is like a, a squashed capital letter. The D is a squashed capital letter. That's representing the divine name Yahweh. So the Lord identifies who he is. I am Yahweh. And then further, the God of Abraham, your father. It's interesting that um, Jacob's father is actually Isaac. But because of the foundational character of Abraham to the people of faith, and because of the way that the blessing of Abraham is being uh, communicated here to, to Jacob, Abraham is identified as, as his father. I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And then here comes the blessing of Abraham. We're going to get land, seed, and blessing. Land first. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Now, if Jacob had eyes to see, Jacob would understand, this is God. And God is promising me the new heavens and new earth. And if I die not inheriting that promise, he's going to be faithful. And he's going to raise me from the dead. And I will enjoy what he has promised to me. That's how Jacob ought to respond. And then verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. So there's multiplied offspring again. Be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1.28. Uh, this particular uh, way of saying it, your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. This reaches back to Genesis 13, where the Lord said that he made the same comparison to Abraham. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. Essentially, what God is saying to Jacob is, I'm going to give you the new heavens and new earth, and only righteous people are going to inhabit that land. Everybody that lives in the land is going to have a changed heart. Everybody that lives in the new heavens and new earth is going to be holy. They're going to be righteous. They're going to be loving. And then, and in you, and in your seed, in your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's the blessing. And, and we know how this is going to come out. In the offspring of Jacob named Jesus... All the families of the earth are blessed. And then the Lord comes back to his own identity in verse 15. He started with his own identity in verse 13. And then he gives him uh, land and then seed and then blessing. And now he comes back to who he is for Jacob. Verse 15. Behold, I am with you. I mean, you know, Joel Bell, my, my good friend Joel is here. 
And if, if I were to approach kind of a dangerous situation, Joel's a big dude. He played, played professional football. And if I, were, if I were to, if Joel and I were walking down the street and we were to be encountered by um, some dangerous looking people and Joel were to say to me, it's okay, I'm with you. <laughs> and maybe, you know, if, like if Marvin was there too and if the two of these big dudes were like, it's okay, I'm with you. I'd be like, hey, I'm good. I'm safe. That's how Jacob ought to respond here. Jacob's reaction ought to be, you're with me? You're with me? <sighs> Hallelujah. Everything's settled. Some of you have maybe heard me tell this story before. Um, years ago when I worked at Canicut Camps, uh, this guy named Aaron Sunberg, uh, his, his dad, this guy Aaron Sunberg was working with me at Canicut, and his dad, his name was Jim Sunberg. Jim Sunberg was the catcher for the Kansas City Royals in 1985 when they won the World Series. And that particular World Series went to the seventh game, and um, they had the Royals had Brett Saberhagen on the mound. If you remember, there was like a there was a bad call in Game Six that cost the Cardinals a game, and it wound up going to Game Seven. And and Jim Jim Sunberg he shared his testimony with us, and he said he talked about that season, and he, he talked about how at the end of the season the Royals had this grueling race. To, to qualify for the playoffs, and they barely got in. And then they had this grueling series of, of, of games that they played through, and they finally got to the seventh game of the World Series, and he said that he, sat, he squatted down in the bullpen for Brett Saberhagen's first pitch, and he said when he threw that first pitch, I knew we were going to win. Brett Saberhagen, he was, he was their ace. He won the Cy Young Award that year, and, and Jim Sunberg could tell that he was on that day. And sure enough, Saberhagen shut down the Cardinals, just totally put them away. And then Jim Sunberg said, said this. He said, since I started walking with God, since I turned from my sin and put my faith and hope in Jesus, it's been like having Brett Saberhagen on the mound for Game 7 of the World Series. That's what it's like to know God. This is how Jacob should respond. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. That blessing in number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. That's the blessing. This is what the Lord is promising to do and be for Jacob. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So he starts with himself, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham and Isaac. And then he ends with himself, I'm with you, and this is what I'm going to do for you. And in the middle he says, land, seed, and blessing. I'm going to save the world through your descendants. And then Jacob, he doesn't get it. Verse 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Now, he's going to focus on the place, and I, that's, where I, that's one aspect of how he's missing the point. The point is not the place. That place is not particularly holy. The point is God is saying to Jacob, I'm with you. I'm revealing myself to you, and wherever you go, right? Verse 15, I, will, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. But Jacob says, the Lord is in this place. And I think probably Jacob has imbibed his culture. In that culture and in a lot of cultures in the world, even to this very day, there is this idea that the gods inhabit certain places and that the gods are gods or lords over, over a particular place. 
And so, you know, you read in the book of Ezra about how the pagan king, he wants to propitiate Yahweh by letting the people of Yahweh go back to the land of Yahweh and build a temple to Yahweh because Yahweh is the God in that place. And if I want peace there, I've got to propitiate Yahweh there. And that seems to be how Jacob is saying, is, is responding when he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Verse 17, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? No, Jacob, how awesome is God? How merciful is God to you? The place is not the issue. He continues, this is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So I think Jacob, he's overawed by his experience, but he's not getting what he ought to get. And we'll continue to see how this is the case. But let me just draw your attention to the way that verses 16 and 17, they really parallel verse, verse 12. If you look back at verse 12, he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And then verse 16, so he dreamed in verse 12, and then he awoke in verse 16, and then verse 17, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So he's really focused on the place mistakenly. Verse 18 we read here, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. And there, there are similarities between verses 10 and 11, where Jacob arrives at this particular place, and then verses 18 and 19 where he uh, sets up this pillar. And, and one, of the, one of the similarities is the way that um, he, he uses this stone for the place of his head in verse 11, and then he's got that same stone that he used for the place of his head in verse 18. And then at the end of this passage, in verses 20 and 21, we see how Jacob, just like Esau, totally and completely misses the point of what God has done for him. So look at verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me. Now think about that. God said to Jacob, I will be with you. Now Jacob is going to set up a test for God. Okay, if you follow through on your word, if God will be with me and will keep me, look back at verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you. And Jacob is like, okay, if you come through on your word, as I was thinking about this, I was trying to think of what this, what analogies to help us feel the force of this. And I think it would be like a toddler, or, or even a, if, if you could have an infant who could talk. This mother's just had a baby. If that baby could talk, and if that baby looked at its mother and said, okay, if the mother says, I love you, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you your food, I'm going to change your diaper, I'm going to do everything you need, I'm going I'm to do everything I can to make sure you have a great life. And the baby says, okay, if you change my diaper and you make sure I'm fed, then you'll be my, you'll be my mommy. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Jacob says to the creator of heaven and earth, okay, you follow through on your word. Jacob says to the only faithful one in existence, okay, you do what you say you'll do. Then you'll be God to me. 
This is not how this works, Jacob. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. Jacob, bread to eat, clothing to wear. He's just promised you the new heavens and new earth. He's just promised you the Savior from your line. You, don't, you think he's not going to give you bread? Verse 21, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then Yahweh shall be my God. And here, really, this is like, this is like taking the Abraham story and just reversing it and making it backwards. God tested Abraham, and Abraham trusted God. Jacob decides that he's going to test God, and he's not going to trust him until he passes the test. And what we see here is just how merciful the Lord is. Verse 22, this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. You, you know how the Lord responds to offers like this in the Bible. David wants to build a house for the, for the Lord. Remember how the Lord responded? I've been moving about. Did, I didn't ask anybody to build me a tent. I didn't ask anybody to build me a house. Solomon builds the, ta- the, the, the temple at last, and, and, and he acknowledges rightly, heaven in the highest heavens cannot contain you. The Lord says through Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 1, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What's the house that you would build for me? God doesn't need a house from Jacob. This stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and all, of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you, Jacob. You think I need your money? Jacob totally misses the point. And, and let's, just, let's just consider for a moment how this plays out in his life. The result of him missing the point. What does he get from this? He gets havoc in his marriage. He gets ruin because he's got these competing wives. Rachel and Leah, and they're going to bicker, and they're going to make his life miserable, and they're going to compete with one another, and they're even going to treat him like a prostitute, buying him from one another. It's, it's not a happy scene. He gets havoc in his in-law relations. Because Jacob doesn't walk in integrity before God, he ruins his relationship with his father-in-law Laban so that God has to intervene to keep Laban from attacking Jacob after Jacob has deceived Laban and fled. He gets havoc from his son's behavior. On on one occasion in Genesis 34, one of Jacob's daughters is going to go out and visit the women of the land. She's going to be violated and abused, and his sons are going to deceive the people of the land, and they're going to slaughter the men of Shechem. They're going, to, they're going to put the city of Shechem under the ban. And Jacob is going to say to those boys, uh, Simeon and Levi, he's going to say, you've made me stink in the, in the nostrils of the inhabitants of the land. He's afraid that all the peoples are going to attack him because of what, he, what they've done to these men of Shechem. Can, can you imagine being the father of adult sons and those adult sons slaughter all the males of a city? That's horrifying. That is, that's, that's, a, that's called a war crime. That's an atrocity that Simeon and Levi have committed. That's on Jacob because of the way that he failed as a father. 
And then those same sons are going to take his favorite son and sell him into slavery in Egypt when Joseph is sold into slavery. Can you imagine being the father of a group of sons and realizing my sons sold their brother into slavery? That's what Jacob gets for thinking that he can make a deal with God. You don't make deals with God. You don't say to God, if you prove yourself trustworthy, I'll trust you. But meanwhile, I'm going to live like a worldling. If God reveals himself to you like this, you repent of your sin. This is what Jacob should do. How should Jacob respond to all this? I think when Jacob beholds God in his holiness on this occasion, he should fall on his face and he should confess his sin of stealing the blessing. And he should acknowledge, Lord, I should have trusted you. I shouldn't have stolen the blessing. I shouldn't have deceived my father Isaac. He, he should have all of his, his sins exposed. And, and he should cry out to God for mercy. And he should say to the Lord, I repent of my sin. I trust your promises that you're making to me. I believe what you're saying to me. And I'm going to walk with you. And, and so every day, Lord, I'm going to rehearse in my mind these promises that you're making to me. Every day, Lord, I'm going to remind myself who you are. Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac. And you're, you've promised to be with me. Every day I'm going to go over this in my mind. And then I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to walk in a way that pleases you. That's how Jacob should respond. So this is an occasion for us to look at our lives. This is an occasion for us to ask ourselves, am I missing the whole point? And, and in some ways... That question comes down to the, the question, has your heart been broken and mended by the gospel? As I was trying to think about what it's like to be somebody whose heart has been broken and mended by the gospel, I thought of these, these episodes in this book by Cormac McCarthy called The Road. If you've never read this book, this is a, this is a really good book. It's set in a post-apocalyptic world. It, there's, it, there's been like a nuclear holocaust. Everything is blown up. There is no more society. There, there is no more civilization. And th there's this man and his son, and they're on the road, and they're, they're trying to get away from these marauding bands of cannibals who, who just go around killing and eating people. And this man, with, with no civilization, is trying to protect his son, and he's trying to keep his son alive. And there are no grocery stores, and there are no safe places. And they come to this, they come to this bombed-out home where everybody's gone, and in the backyard they find a bomb shelter. And in the bomb shelter, somebody expecting this kind of situation has stored up all of this, this canned food. And the man and his son, they go down into the bomb shelter and they have, for a small period of time, they have food and they have safety. And, and McCarthy, he writes like a man who's been hungry. He writes like somebody who has gone long stretches with his belly growling and his stomach shrinking, and then he finally gets food. And he says, this is what he writes of, of the experience of this man and his son. Crate upon crate of canned goods. Tomatoes, peaches, beans, apricots, canned hams, corned beef, hundreds of gallons of water in 10-gallon plastic jerry jugs, paper towels, Toilet paper, paper plates, plastic trash bags stuffed with blankets. He held his forehead on his hand. Oh my God, he said. He looked back at the boy 
It's all right, he said. Come down. And the boy says, what did you find? He says, I found everything, everything. Wait till you see. You hear what he found? He found all this stuff that we take for granted every day. That's what it is to be broken and mended by the gospel. It's to know what your need is. It's to know how holy God is, to have experienced just a little bit of it, and to know how desperate your situation is before that holy God. And then to experience the gospel and to have the wonder that this God who has every right to crush you has given his own son for you and to feel I'm saved, I'm free, I'm forgiven. God has shown mercy to me. That's what it is not to miss the point. It's to understand that the whole point of creation, the whole point of the universe is the gospel and what God has done in Christ and what he's doing in the church. And then to cause that knowledge to work its way out in your every relationship, in every situation that you find yourself in. You're constantly saying to yourself, how can I live like Jesus in this situation? How can I serve other people in this situation? How can I make life better? How can I help somebody know God? What can I do for other people? How can I not? What can I get? What's in it for me? No, we repudiate that way of life. And we say, how do I lay myself down? How do I take up the cross and follow Jesus? This is what Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 8. Starting in verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. That's what Jacob gets. Until he turns, until he repents. But whoever loses his his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We want to respond to the Lord who is mercifully revealing himself to us in the scriptures. If you're here today and you're not our follower of Jesus and you're thinking to yourself, how do I respond? Here's here's how you you respond. You accept God with no requirements. You, You say to him, this is how Jacob should respond. You're the Lord. You're God. Whatever you say. That's how you respond. That's how Abraham responded. Remember the Lord says, leave your country and your kindred and father's house and go to the land. And Abraham's like, let's go. I'm out, whatever you say. The Lord shows up, Abraham falls on his face, and then there's this tornado of activity, Abraham seeking to serve the Lord. He's not responding like Jacob's responding here. We accept God without requirement. We trust him without testing him. If the Bible says, and it does, go make disciples of all nations, and Jesus says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, then we say, where do we start? How do we get going on this project? What do we need to do? Let's get after it. Whatever he says, that's what we do. We recognize in all this, I mean, here I'm thinking of Jacob saying, of all that you give to me, I'll give you a full tenth. We re- he doesn't need us. We need him. He doesn't, I hope this is liberating to you, God doesn't need your financial contribution. But you need to give it. Your soul needs to give it. You need it for your sake. You need to be somebody who says to the Lord, I'm going to give regularly as a spiritual discipline. I'm going to do this as an act of faith, as an act of worship, because I trust God. 
because I believe that he'll provide. And I'm going to use this as an opportunity for me to show to the world and, to, and to, to rejoice in the Lord. I need to give. You need to give. God doesn't need our money. He, do, he doesn't. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God doesn't need us to believe his word. We need to believe it big time. We need to trust him. God doesn't need us to walk like Abraham did. We need to walk that way. We need to, if we want to walk with him. Lastly, why does Jesus quote this passage in John chapter 1? Why does Jesus reference this? I think it goes back to the way that God mercifully gives what the world is seeking. The world is trying to climb its ladder into heaven. It's trying to build its tower into heaven. And Jesus says, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's as though Jesus is saying, you want the link to the heavens? It's me. You want the place where God is present? It's me. You want the place where sins are dealt with, where cleansing is accomplished, where sacrifice is made that atones for sin? It's me. So John 2, a few verses later, destroy this temple. Talking about his body, and in three days I will raise it up. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled. Jesus fulfills the temple. And by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the people of Jesus are God's temple. Don't you know, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, that you yourselves are God's temple and that his spirit dwells in you. He's with you. He's with you. And he's everything. He's everything we need. Let's pray together. Father, make us like a hungry man, desperate to keep his child safe, starving, who has found food and water. Lord, cause us to feel the wonder of the gospel more deeply than that. Make it everything to us, Lord. Lord, make us people who, who think about our future and the question we ask is, how do I live out the gospel? When we think about what you're calling us to do in the future, Lord, make us think, how do I live for Christ? And Lord, make us people who feel what Paul felt when he wrote to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you for the the goodness of the gospel. We thank you for your word. We thank you for not sparing your own son, but freely giving him up for us all. And we thank you, Lord, that he is our righteousness and sanctification and wisdom and justification. And Lord, we thank you that we can worship you by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ. Amen.